Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 41 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. I recommend listening to episode 39 and 40 before you listen to this episode. And now, the first woman in space, Vostok 5 and 6, part 3. During the night of June 18th to June 19th, Gagarin, Titov, and Nikolaev prepared some recommendations for Tereshkova on the manual attitude control of her spacecraft. After Tereshkova woke up, she received the recommendations and prepared for a practice run of the deorbiting maneuver. First, she unbuckled from her seat so she could get closer to the flight controls, and then, for 15 minutes during her 45th orbit, she was able to hold the spacecraft with its braking engines facing in the direction of the flight as it would be required during her actual deorbiting maneuver if the automatic system failed. At 9.39 a.m., ground controllers sent commands to Vostok 6 to begin its automated deorbiting sequence. The flight control system oriented the spacecraft using the sun as a guide, fired the engine for 39 seconds, and then separated the capsule from the instrument module just as planned. However, there was a problem. Ground controllers did not receive any confirmation from Tereshkova that the deorbiting maneuver was successful. After a period of uncertainty, tension on the ground was partially eased with a message from a tracking ship in the southern hemisphere confirming the successful reception of critical commands on board the spacecraft. But ground controllers still did not know if Tereshkova was okay. After the flight, Tereshkova said she telegraphed all the key milestones of the landing sequence via a Morse code transmitter, but somehow nobody was listening to those signals. During re-entry, plasma enveloped the capsule. Tereshkova saw pieces of burning material zooming by her window, and she also smelled smoke entering the cabin. A few minutes later, she ejected normally from her capsule at an altitude of around 7 kilometers and then separated from the ejection seat. After the opening of the parachute, she saw her spacecraft and the seat plunging toward the ground. Shortly before her touchdown, she saw a lake below and braced herself for a water landing, but fortunately flew over it. Meanwhile, back at Mission Control, Ground-based radar detected Vostok 6 and predicted the landing site would be considerably overshot from the planned point. Again, mission officials had to endure a long period of uncertainty about the fate of Tereshkova. It took two hours before word finally came that Tereshkova was alive and well some 620 kilometers northeast of Karaganda in Kakistan. Tereshkova had landed on her back about 400 meters from the spacecraft. At touchdown, she hit her face on the edge of the helmet, which gave her a bloody nose and a bruise under her eye. According to Tereshkova, she received her injuries when violent gusts of winds pulled her on the ground before she had a chance to release her parachute. Next, Tereshkova made it back to her capsule, where she was soon surrounded by local people eager to help. Exhausted and hungry, 
She happily traded her space food for some homemade potatoes with onions and horse milk. According to some negative accounts, Tereshkova traded her food to hide the fact that she ate very little while in space. It was also reported that she spent some of the time waiting for rescuers by making records in her journal that were supposed to be made during the flight. But, what is known for sure is Tereshkova did violate protocol by eating local food. Mission Control had hoped to get data on how well Tereshkova had fared on the space food diet. An hour later, two parachuters from an aircraft found Tereshkova. One of the rescuers was a female doctor and a world's record holder in parachute jumping. She protested Tereshkova's attempts to mislead the post-flight analysis of her condition in space. Back in space, it was now time for Vostok 5 to land. Baikovsky confirmed the correct orientation for breaking the spacecraft. Next, the tracking vessels in the ocean received telemetry that the braking engine was firing. Vostok 5 was successfully slowing for re-entry, but as soon as the engine was cut off, Vostok 5 started tumbling. Fortunately, Baikovsky remained calm and the re-entry proceeded smoothly. During the atmospheric descent, the cabin hatch popped open with a loud bang and two seconds later, Baikovsky ejected out of the capsule at an altitude of around 7 kilometers. He landed safely in grasslands between two villages. Baikovsky's landing spot was overshot as well, and once again, mission officials at ground stations had to agonize over the fate of the cosmonaut. Baikovsky landed around 540 kilometers northwest of Karaganda, Kakistan. About 100 people gathered to greet him. Baikovsky was given a car ride by a local to his capsule, which was about one and a half to two kilometers from where he touched down. From there, he made it to the city of Kustani. By 5 p.m., Korolov, Kamanin, and other top officials finally received confirmation that both cosmonauts were alive and well. The dual flight lasted 70 hours and 40 minutes. Khrushchev made a telephone call to Baikovsky at the landing site and congratulated him, telling him that he was now the first to become a communist in space. Baikovsky had recently applied to become a communist party member, and he was granted his membership while in orbit. Since it was late in the day, it was decided to leave Tereshkova to spend the night in Karaganda while Baikovsky remained overnight in Kustani. Early on June 20th, Korolov, Kamanin, and other officials boarded a transport plane in Tyratam and flew to Kubayshev. Later in the morning, Tereshkova revisited her landing site where she took part in a reenactment of her landing and its footage was released to the world. Later that day, Baikovsky and Tereshkova met near Kubashev at a country retreat overlooking the Volga River. They went through the standard post-flight medical checkups and this allowed Tereshkova some time for her bruises to heal. By 11.30 a.m., seven Air Force planes loaded with officials arrived to meet the cosmonauts, but Kamanin made a special effort to weed out unneeded 
personnel and send them back to Moscow. At 1 p.m., the cosmonauts met with the members of the State Commission, whom they delivered their first post-flight reports, which were recorded on tape. Next, Baikowski gave an account of his mission. In addition to recalling the most memorable episodes of the mission, he described his impressions from observing the Earth's surface given its potential importance for future military missions. Baikowski filmed with a black-and-white movie camera. He captured a horizon, the moon, and the Earth's surface. He tried to use binoculars for observations but found it too difficult to focus and preferred using the viewfinder of the movie camera. Baikowski also conducted simple scientific experiments. He shook a vial with a liquid containing an air bubble and confirmed that the bubble remained intact. He also watched a pea grow and made different movements around the spacecraft trying to register any reaction of his vestibular system, but he did not notice any adverse effects. He also did some physical exercise, including the use of a rubber strip, and he checked his eyesight. Baikowski generally approved of the space food provided. However, he recommended against eating it before lunch. Baikowski was possibly hinting about the effect that food had on his stomach. He also struggled a bit with all the empty food tubes and packages. He had a positive impression about the spacecraft. However, he did note that the clock was inconveniently placed and it was difficult to read instrument indicators. He also said that it was totally impossible to reach the first aid compartment without unfastening from the seat. All total, Baikowski spent 90 minutes free-floating in the cabin of the spacecraft during his 18th, 34th, 50th, and 66th orbits. Now, Tereshkova's account of her flight. Tereshkova documented cities, clouds, and the moon, but noted it was very difficult to film and take notes of what she was filming at the same time. Apparently, both of her pencils broke and she had to give up further records. Many years later, Tereshkova was asked about the pencils. Here is her response. There was only one pencil. No, it didn't break. No. You know, sometimes they ask me to deny these stories, but I don't think there's any need to. An honest person would never believe them. You must understand that those were the first space flights. We had to prove that a human could function even aboard a spacecraft in those conditions. Tereshkova did not perform biological experiments because of the trouble reaching samples while buckled in the seat. She also reported that her hygiene towels had been too small and did not contain enough moisture, and she recommended that a means for brushing teeth be incorporated into the flights. Both Tereshkova and Baikowski reported seeing lightning and city lights on the ground, but neither could see the sun's corona. Temperature on Vostok 6 fluctuated in a similar pattern to Vostok 5's. Around 30 degrees at launch, 
23 degrees by the end of the first day and then falling to 12 degrees by the beginning of the second day and remaining there for the rest of the flight. On the morning of the next day, June 21, 1963, Radinko, Gagarin, Titov, Nikolaev, and other Air Force officials flew back to Moscow. Baikovsky and Tereshkova stayed behind with Kamanin because the bruise on Valentina's face was still well visible. But despite that, Kamalin followed a recommendation of the State Commission Chairman to organize a press conference with Baikovsky and Tereshkova for around 60 journalists that were approved by the Soviet authorities to cover the mission. Kamalin quickly coached the cosmonauts on how to answer the questions and then took them to the hour-long event. The next day, June 22nd, the cosmonauts finally made their big entrance in Moscow. A large celebration was held at the airport where the cosmonauts landed. The ceremony continued in Red Square with Khrushchev's participation. Both cosmonauts were given the Hero of the Soviet Union Award. Here's a translated excerpt from Tereshkova and Khrushchev's speech. I'm so happy to have been granted the honor of being the first woman in the world to go into space. The bourgeoisie always emphasize that women are the weaker sex. Now, here you can see a typical Soviet woman who in the eyes of the bourgeoisie is weak. Look at what she has shown to America's cosmonauts. She showed them who's who. The ceremony concluded at 9 p.m. with fireworks launched over Moscow. Materially speaking, Baikovsky and Tereshkova received 15,000 rubles each, which was a tremendous amount of money by Soviet standards. Both also received a new Volga car, a piano, a TV, a turntable, a vacuum cleaner, a refrigerator, a washing machine, a rug, a tea set, a dining set, and bedding sets. They and their closest relatives also received some nice clothes. By the end of 1963, Tereshkova married fellow cosmonaut Andrean Nikolaev, who had flown in Vostok 3 a year earlier. At the wedding, Western reporters noticed two individuals who were identified as pioneers of the Soviet rocket development in the 1920s and 1930s. The men were Sergei Korolev and Valentin Glushko. This gave the Western nations a hint of who was in charge of the Soviet space program. And now, the controversy. In a mission of this nature, there was naturally some controversy in the patriarchal Soviet rocket industry. Tereshkova's initial failure to conduct the attitude control exercise gave ammunition to the Air Force officials, arguing that only experienced military pilots should be allowed at the controls of the spacecraft. Korolev had fought vigorously to put engineers at the helm of the vehicles that they were designing, 
and he felt that Tereshkova had let him down. In fact, he famously displayed old-fashioned sexism, reportedly saying, quote, he would never agree to launch a broad again, end quote. Shortly after the flight, Chertok scheduled a meeting with Tereshkova to get her side of the story. Tereshkova arrived as scheduled in the company of one of Korolov's assistants, a former KGB officer. Chertok introduced her to his engineers and asked her to retell her experiences with controlling the spacecraft and her observations. He asked her not to be shy about criticizing the spacecraft, but before she could get started, Korolev burst into the meeting. He asked for a confidential 10-minute talk with Tereshkova. The conversation actually took 30 minutes, and Tereshkova reappeared looking distraught, practically in tears. Chertov's colleagues asked her a few questions, but the whole situation was awkward, and Chertov decided to end the meeting, and he walked Tereshkova to her car. Chertov promised her to find a better time to listen to her side of the story, but that time never came. After the end of the official adulation and propaganda of the Soviet era, several of Tereshkova's colleagues published condescending and dismissive statements about her performance during the flight and exaggerated her failures as a cosmonaut. According to one such account, during her days at Zukovsky Air Force Academy, Tereshkova reportedly shared her experience during the flight with Vasily Seleznev, a navigation systems expert who taught Tereshkova and other early Soviet cosmonauts at the academy. According to Seleznev's recollections, edited and published by his daughter decades later, Tereshkova felt good at the very beginning of the flight and sent upbeat messages to the ground. However, suddenly she experienced dizziness and severe vomiting. She didn't even have enough time to pick up a trash bag and some vomit escaped into the weightless cabin. According to Seleznev, Tereshkova also struggled with her spacesuit, particularly with its toilet system, which she found not perfectly suitable for a female body. On the second day, remnants of vomit which remained in the cabin produced a bad smell, giving Tereshkova a headache and dizziness. In an effort to control the smell, she lowered the temperature in the cabin down to 16 degrees C. There were other negative rumors and comments as well, which I'm not going to discuss because the facts of the mission are much more important than hearsay and rumors. Moving on. Vostok 6 was the last flight of the Vostok series, which included a total of 13 launches. The six manned vehicles logged a total of 383 hours in space. Flight duration records set by Bakovsky and Tereshkova remained standing for a single man and woman, respectively, and Tereshkova remains the only woman to have orbited the Earth alone. After a triumphant tour of the globe, this time without leaving the Earth, 
Tereshkova went on to make a successful political career within the Soviet establishment. However, her desire to fly again was never fulfilled, even though she remained involved with the space program for a number of years. Her backups and rivals among female cosmonauts continued training, but never made it into space. Svetlana Savitskaya was the next Soviet woman to fly in space, but that was 19 years later. As before, Savitskaya's mission was prompted by competition with the U.S., this time the imminent launch of an American female astronaut, Sally Ride, on board the space shuttle. While women became common in the U.S. space shuttle program during the 1980s and 90s, they have remained rare exceptions in Russian spaceflight. Ironically, Russia's Soyuz spacecraft carried more foreign female astronauts than Russian women. In the U.S., Tereshkova's flight supplied a new spin on the fear of Russian superiority, as writers and political leaders praised the equality of Soviet womanhood. Here's a brief newsreel. A woman blasted into space for the first time in 63. Russia sent Valentina Tereshkova on a 48-orbit ride. In June of this year, 2013, while in space on the International Space Station, astronaut Karen Nyberg recorded this message in honor of the 50th anniversary of Tereshkova's flight. Fifty years ago, a brave cosmonaut named Valentina Tereshkova blazed a trail for women around the world by launching an Avostok spacecraft to become the first female to fly in space. That groundbreaking achievement in the early days of the space race was an important step for women representing many nations and cultures to consider new paths in life. The work of Ms. Tereshkova and that of Sally Ride 20 years later as the first American woman to fly in space served as an inspiration to me to study hard and to conclude that nothing could stop me from reaching as far as I could to achieve my dreams. It is an honor during this 50th anniversary celebration of the flight of Valentina Tereshkova to be flying with Russian, American, and Italian colleagues on this magnificent laboratory called the International Space Station. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.